Please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, as the name suggests, the book of Hebrews is a book written to a uniquely Jewish audience. And that Jewish audience is tempted to apostatize from Christ and return to the old covenantal sacrificial system. The author seeks to fashion a case proving the supremacy of Christ in every way. And where the old covenant was insufficient, Christ was and is sufficient to meet man's greatest needs. I trust it will be a, ble- it will be a, it will be a blessing as we are once again in Hebrews chapter 10 this evening. It was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. And Jewish tradition states that it was around four inches thick. It was a beautiful tapestry. It was woven by over 80 weavers who used white, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. It was embroidered with heavenly angels in large squares that were eventually assembled like a quilt. I found reports that this special quilt was so heavy when completed that it took over 300 attendants to manipulate, to cleanse, and then to install this tapestry. Josephus, the Jewish historian, states that when it was completed, four horses pulling from each corner could not tear it apart. And of course, I'm speaking to you of the veil in the temple in Jerusalem that guarded the Holy of Holies. And as I was reading about it at first, I marveled at its size, 60 feet by 30 feet. Now, if you've ever made a quilt, ladies or gentlemen, I guess if that's your thing, um, that's a lot of work. I marveled at its size. I marveled at its strength. And I couldn't help but imagine its beauty. After all, it was in the place of worship. It was in God's house, if you will. But then I realized something that made its beauty fade very quickly. In fact, when I realized why this veil was woven, I actually began to despise its presence. See, it was created for one reason, and it was to keep mankind out. In fact, this veil became a constant reminder to the worshiper that God was present, oh, he was there, but he could not be approached even though that was man's greatest yearning, whether man wanted to admit it or not. See, God created us to be in fellowship with him. We want to know who our God is. Inside each one of us, I've heard, there is a God-shaped hole, and nothing will fill it except for God. And yet, we couldn't get to him. That wasn't until this veil was torn one day in Jerusalem. And it was torn from top to bottom by God himself. This torn veil was a message sent to us by God. And our passage for the evening declares to us that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross brought with it great ramifications for all mankind, chiefly that we have access now to our Creator. And I believe this passage is in Scripture simply because people fail to grasp what Jesus' sacrifice means for us as man. And the whole book of Hebrews addresses this issue. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection is better than any other dispensation that came before. 
And it really is, and it really does, transform mankind's existence. I believe this study will dovetail well with our time around the Lord's table, and I don't want to take away a lot of time from that. So we are briefly going to look, and we are briefly, hopefully, going to grasp what Christ's sacrifice means for us, and then we'll go in and we'll remember around the Lord's table. And I trust then also, as we have seen what Christ has done, it will then motivate us to live in a certain way in light of that sacrifice. So you're in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 19. Our text is going to go from 19 down through 25. God's word says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need to see first and foremost what we have in Christ. And we start off very clearly in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Chapter 10 talks a lot about this sacrifice. We don't have time to necessarily go through it, but God, again, created man to yearn for relationship with him. Before sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. It was a regular occurrence. There was that fellowship, and fellowship with God, it was the norm. Now, after sin entered the world, man could no longer stand in the presence of a holy God, and that is indicated by when God drives out Adam and Eve from the garden. In fact, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. We all had a sin problem. We all could not, by nature, could not remove that sin. Again, Isaiah 59, verse 2 continues. It says, your sins have hid his face from you. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Why? Because we rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And that rebellion, rightfully so, brought upon us the wrath of God. But what did Jesus do? What do we have in Christ? Well, first off, we need to see that Jesus' blood covers our sin completely. Again, for the original audience, this would have made perfect sense because they would have watched and they would have participated over and over again as they brought a little lamb or a turtle dove, some sort of offering into the temple, and that little animal, whatever it was, would have paid for their sin. And the priest would have taken that animal and the blood would have covered the sin of that person, that worshiper. And Jesus' blood covers our sin completely. Now this is where it gets different. What's interesting about the Old Testament and the sacrificial system was that those, those sacrifices had to happen often. But Jesus' blood covers our sin completely. 
we can be finally sanctified through Jesus' blood. In fact, look at verse 10. It says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How often? Once for all. Because of what Christ did, this was a different sacrifice. Jesus' blood covers our sin completely, and there's no need for a repeat sacrifice. And we can now enter boldly into God's presence. The sacrificial system didn't allow for that. Sins could be covered, but the personal fellowship was still off limits to us. And Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says that he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. And so Jesus' blood covers our sin, not just partially, but completely. Our past, our present, and our future sins, if we are under Christ, have been covered by the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. And so Jesus' blood covers our sin completely, but also Jesus then instituted a new and living way. The verse says very clearly, we can enter into the Holy of Holies by a new and living way. What is this new and living way? Well, it is a way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Jesus instituted a new and living way. Jesus' physical sacrifice was a special sacrifice, again, that ended the need for the old way things were done. The veil that kept people out was now not needed. Jesus made the veil unnecessary. And Jesus even prophesied of this when he declared that the temple would, not, or would be destroyed in Matthew chapter 24. It was no longer going to be necessary when he made the sacrifice. And the Levitical sacrificial system ended with Jesus' sacrifice. But historically, all sacrifices ceased as well in AD 70 with the destruction of that temple in Jerusalem, just like Jesus said. See, Christ was making it clear there was going to be a new way of doing things, and it all went through him. And so in Christ, we have bold access to our God. What else do we have in Jesus? Well, we have a high priest over the house of God as well. Verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. Jesus, what does this mean? Jesus, it means that Jesus presides over the house of God. He is the perfect high priest. He has the position, the authority, and the responsibilities of this spiritual position or unit. And that includes all those who come to God through him. If you are in Christ this evening, then he is your high priest. What did the high priests do? Well, the high priests, one of the responsibilities was they made the sacrifices. They were, uh, they were the go-between. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away our sins. There was covering, but there was never a removal of that, that sin. Okay, what else was true of these Old uh, Testament sacrificial priests. Verse, uh, verse 12, it says, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down on the right hand of God. 
This is fascinating because one of the things that was true of a priest was he never sat down. Why? Because there was always another sinner standing at the gates. There was always another need for another sacrifice to cover another sin. And so he was constantly moving. He'd finish with one group of people and then he would have to work with the next group of people and then the next group of people and then fast forward a year and the same person who he dealt with a year earlier had came back and there was still need for that covering what's true of Jesus well Jesus was different again verse 12 this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever he sat down His job was done. When he said it is finished, he literally meant it is finished. It's done. I have completed the sacrifice. And he sits down, having finished. But not only did Jesus make the one and final sacrifice, Jesus being our high priest, what else does he do? Well, he actively intercedes on our behalf. Think about what that priest did, that Old Testament priest. You would come, and you would come to the temple with sin on your conscience and on your heart, knowing that you were wrong before God. And then another man would come, and he would take that offering, and he would then go on your behalf to God. And he would offer that sacrifice, and there was that covering that God made made a way for So there was that active intercession. But again, Jesus did it better. Okay, he, this man, verse 12 again, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Look at verse 14. uh, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. What does that mean? That he, his perfect sacrifice allows us now to be complete, to be sanctified ourselves. And he is at the right hand of the throne of God, and guess what he does for us if we are in him? He is actively living to make intercession for his saints, his people. Again, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 makes that very clear. He maketh intercession for us. So, beloved, what do you have in Jesus? The writer of Hebrews makes a case that Christ is better than the sacrificial system. And I was struck with this reality. Think about this. Hundreds of thousands of priests sacrificed millions of animals so that man could in some way be near to God. And then Jesus came. And Jesus made one sufficient sacrifice. He was both the all-sufficient sacrifice, but he was also the perfect priest and mediator offering it. Again, man now has access to a holy God directly. You can come in boldly, as verse 19 says. You can enter into the holiest place. Is it because of us? Certainly not. It is by the blood of Jesus. We need to see and understand what mankind has in the perfect high priest of Jesus. He offered the perfect sacrifice himself, And he lives to make further sanctifying intercession for those who are in him. This this truth 
as I sat in my office, it kind of, the phrase is, it blew my mind. This is what Christ did for you. I marveled at that. If you really consider what our Savior does, I worshiped the perfect lamb who was slain for you and for me. And after I kind of sat there and I thought about that in my office for a while, I thought, boy, that's enough to preach right there. I could just spend my whole time just thinking and dwelling and giving illustration of what it looked like in the Old Testament versus now what it is in Christ and how Christ made that perfect sacrifice. And we can come boldly before God and we have access. We can even call him our father. Oh, what wonderful truths. But then I thought, is that it? With so great a high priest as we have seen, I had a sense of obligation. This obligation was not so that I would gain some way uh, his favor, because Christ is the greatest favor we could ever gain from God. I can't earn this sacrifice. And yet, I still sat there and I felt some sort of obligation and a a desire, maybe I can put it that way, a desire to do something. Again, not to gain further forgiveness, because I was forgiven to the uttermost in Christ. But I was compelled to do something, and that was to live for this great one who sacrificed for me. And this makes perfect sense. If you've ever sat and just looked at your Savior and what he has done for you, you cannot help but then walk away and saying, everything I have, I want to live for him. I want his name to be known above every every other name. And this makes perfect sense. And the writer of Hebrews helps us to know what we are to do. Maybe you sit here today and you look at what Jesus did and you kind of go, eh. Well, then I would encourage you, you need to see what you have in Jesus. But maybe you sit here and you say, I see it, Pastor Nate, what do I do? Well, that's where the book of Hebrews continues and our passage continues. Because we are now, because of our Savior, we are expected to live a certain way. And we have an invitation Oh, what a wonderful invitation. Verse 22, it says, let us, since we have all these things. Now, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first invitation is, if you have access, well, then let's draw near to God. Don't neglect your time. Don't neglect your reality in Christ. Given to the original audience, this invitation is a fulfillment of even some of the prophecies that God gave to his people, the children of Israel, where not only was there going to come a time where we had access, but then we were going to, or God's people were going to be able to draw near and take advantage of this invitation Now, again, I'm going to reiterate, can man simply draw near to God? No. Why? Because man is corrupted in every part of their person. Their immaterial and material man is corrupted. But if you come through the blood of Christ, now you are able to draw near. And you should. 
and you must. This invitation is given. How does one accomplish this? How should we draw near to, to Christ or to God? Well, he lays it out in verse 22. We are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are to come first with a genuine or a true heart. That means we are supposed to come void of flippancy or ulterior motive. We come with one reason. It is to know and to magnify him. So he says, come with a genuine or a true heart. Then we're supposed to come through faith, and we're supposed to come with a clear conscience and a pure heart. What does that mean? Well, pastor said this morning, faith is what you believe. Conscience is what you do with what you believe. And so again, through faith, it is Jesus' work credited to man's account. And faith becomes the key that unlocks this access for each individual. What do I mean? Well, we don't come trying to impress him. We don't come trying to, uh, and again, gain favor with God. We come humbly knowing he is the only reason that we are coming. Again, he gets the praise and the glory. So he says, come with a tr- uh, come through faith. But then he says also with a clear conscience and the purity of heart. Uh, in fact, the, the, the translation says, our bodies washed with pure water. Well, think about this. Or let me ask you this. Let's put it that way. Do you have a clear conscience this evening? If we are judicially pure, we should be practically pure as well. After salvation, we are called to walk worthy of the calling wherewith Christ hath called us. And we are to approach God, and we are to approach God with a clear conscience and a purity of heart. In a moment, we are going to partake of the Lord's table. And one of the major parts of that is we are going to judge ourselves. We are going to check ourselves to make sure there is nothing between us and God. That we will be in pure and full communion with him. And so we have this invitation, let us draw near to God. When we draw near to God, what else are we supposed to do? Verse 23, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith. How do we do that? Well, we do it without wavering. Think about this. Perseverance of the saints is obtained and protected by God. Okay, Once saved, always saved is how we would say it here. But humanly speaking, man proves his faith by fulfilling his responsibility to hold on to or to grasp that faith. And the way that I think about this, um, let us hold fast the profession of our faith, is to think about a cat. I am not a cat person, okay? But one thing that is true of cats is most often they just do not appreciate water. And I got thinking about, and I remember seeing videos online, and and you kind of chuckle at these. When a cat is about to go into a bath, they will literally do anything and everything to prevent themselves from going into that water. And if they can hold on to something, sometimes it's their owner, and if they can hold on to that owner, they will do anything and everything, including um, penetrating the skin of their owner with their claws and, and biting and scratching and doing everything to hold on so that they don't go into that water. And when I think about holding on to faith, sometimes I think that way. 
Do you hold on to your faith? Is that the most fundamental and foundational part of your life? When everything else around you is, is wavering, are you holding on to your faith? Are you holding fast to it? Don't waver. Hold on to your faith. You may say, I don't know if I can. We are called to be faithful until the Lord comes back. Again, you may say, but Pastor Nate, you don't understand what I'm going through. Well, when we are losing our grip, where do we go? We'll look at verse 23. Or, yeah, verse 23. We can hold fast to the profession of our faith. That's our responsibility without wavering. Why? Because or for he is faithful that promised. So maybe you are getting to the end of your strength and you don't know if you can hold on anymore. You, you see all of the things around you and you wonder, how am I going to make it? What do you do? You look at your high priest. You look at Jesus and you see what he has done. You look at the one who promised that if I'm holding you in the palm of my hand, as Christ says, no man will pluck you out of that hand. And my Father, which is in heaven, is greater than all. And if you are in the Father's hand, no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand either. And so you hold fast to the profession of your faith without wavering. Why? Because he is faithful, that promised. So we hold fast. Then, what else are we supposed to do? We are to incite others to love and good works. It says, lastly, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We are now called to encourage one another in Christ. We are called to provoke or incite others to love and to good works. Love for our Savior, love for one another. Good works, not to gain God's favor, but to prove God's favor that has already been shown to us through Christ. And how do we do that? We consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. There's the command. Here's how you do it. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Can I say, in order for you to incite others to love and good works, it is a present ministry. Okay, I don't have to remind you, a few years ago, we had a long stretch of time where we were not together because of the pandemic. And it was very hard to incite one another to love and to good works when we are not together. You must be present. Don't be absent. Don't forsake the assembling of yourself. When the doors are open, can I encourage you to be here? Why? Because we need you to be here. And you need us to be here. And we must be present. We must be faithful. But not only must we be present, but we do this because we are being urgent as well. So we incite others to love and good work by being present and being urgent. Why do we need to be urgent? Well, look at verse, the end of verse 25. We do these things. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but we exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Beloved, we won't have forever. There will come a time when we are done with our opportunities to provoke others to love and good works. Whether the Lord takes us home through death or whether he comes back for us in glory, 
there will come a point when our inciting of others is done. We will be with the Lord forever, and that'll be glorious. But until that happens, we have this responsibility to encourage one another and to push and to incite and to lead others to love their Savior, to live for their Savior. His coming is imminent. That's the next thing on the calendar of God's future. There's nothing more that needs to happen. He could come back tonight. He could come back in the next 50 years. We don't know. And so we need to be active and inciting others to love and to good works. Think for a moment. Do you have unsafe people in your house, in your family, in your neighborhood? There will come a point when you will no longer be able to incite them to run to Christ for salvation. There will come a day when you will no longer come to Grace Baptist Church. For you will either pass away, or again the Lord will come back for us, and our opportunities to incite others to follow and to love him will be over. If the Lord gives you a new day, be active in sharing Jesus with all that you meet. And so to wrap this up this evening, I want us to think about a particular man. He will, ever, he will forever be known as the man who asked, what is truth? When he had the way, the truth, and the life standing right in front of him. Pontius Pilate had the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world standing in front of him. And he asked the question, what is truth? He was blind to who he was standing in front of. He had the Lamb of God. He had the opportunity to talk, to make a decision, an opportunity to live a different way, to to see the new and living way. And he was blind to it all. The question is, are we like that? When Christ finished, or when Christ cried, it is finished, he opened the only way to God. Forevermore, we could have access and fellowship with our creator. Oh, what a privilege and oh, what a blessing it is if you are in Christ. Can I say, don't miss what Jesus offers to every single person in this world. We can have bold access to God if you go through him. We can have our sins forgiven. We can have a high priest that made the perfect sacrifice and then continues to minister to us. Jesus has offered all of these things to us. But the question is, what are you going to do with him? If you're here without Christ, can I encourage you, receive him tonight. Receive him as your savior. Put your faith and trust in him alone and the finished sacrifice he made on your behalf. It was your sins that nailed him to the tree. And he offered himself for you and for me. Now, if we are already saved by his finished work, what does that mean for us? What do we do? We should worship and we should live for him. See, his sacrifice for us should change everything about our trajectory, about our priorities. For one, we are invited to draw near to him. Beloved, 
Are you drawing near to him? Are you taking advantage of this invitation? Do you know him more today than you knew him yesterday? Are you drawing near to him? You can come with boldness in prayer, in conversation with our God. Another question, is your conscience clear? Again, in a moment, we're going to have opportunity to make sure things are right, that we will say that we are in communion with God. If something is not right, make it right now. Secondly, we are called to hold fast to our faith, not being wooed by anything that would draw us away from him. Are there things that have caught your eye? Are there things that have pulled you away? Repent of that. Get rid of it so that you might pursue Christ and that you might hold fast to your faith. Thirdly, we are called to invite and incite others to the same relationship that we have in Christ. Are you active in sharing your faith? Are you an active influence on others to know Christ, maybe even around here? Do you have people that you are pouring into? Are you active? Remember, there must be a sense of urgency. Why? Because we have been given so much through Christ. And if the church of God, the people of God, those who name the name of Christ, if they were to just grasp and to think and to focus on who Christ is and what Christ has done, it would change and transform us exponentially. And I believe it is high time that we all recognize what we have in Christ and we order our life to reflect that by drawing near, by holding fast, and by impacting others for our Savior. Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for who our Savior is. We thank you for what he has done. And Lord, we look forward now to the next few moments, remembering what he has done. Oh Lord, he's done so much for us. He is our perfect high priest. Lord, if there's one here who's unsaved, Lord, may tonight be the night of salvation for them. May they stop trusting in the world. May they stop trusting in their own ideas. May they trust in Christ and Christ alone for the covering of their sin, the the remission, the removal of their sin. And then, Lord, for these among us who are your people, myself included, would you help us to live for you? Not that we could gain your favor, but, Lord, that we could dedicate every part of us to you, that you would help us to draw near to you, that we would hold fast, that we would incite others, knowing that you are coming back for us. And we want all of this to be to the praise of his glory, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.